Father God, we just ask that uh, this morning as we get into your word, that you would just speak to us, uh, Lord, that there would be things that we could take home with us that we can um, just fold into our lives as we learn about your grace and your mercy and how it's not what we can do on our own strength, but what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. The great composer Ludwig van Beethoven lived much of his life in fear of deafness. Uh, he was losing his hearing over time, and he was worried about that. And he was concerned because obviously he felt like his sense of hearing was necessary towards writing music that was going to have lasting value. And when he discovered that his hearing loss was inevitable, that he was going to indeed become deaf, he started you know, anxiously and frantically visiting doctors and trying to find all kinds of remedies to, you know, to solve that using apparatuses and, and earworms and things like that. But um, this happened over time until his hearing was finally gone. And once he found the strength to go on, to pick up his pen and start writing music again, um, as his hearing loss was gone completely, the melody started to you know, flow into his head without all the distractions. And he was able to, to his friend's amazement, write some of his most amazing music after he had lost his hearing. So uh, what he thought was his greatest asset in his hearing, um, actually, in a way, was a hindrance towards him writing some of his best music. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Some of the things that we feel like are our greatest assets can actually be um, a hindrance to us in living a life before the Lord. Well, last week we left off with Paul telling the Philippian church to look out. To look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for the mutilators, because these were the guys who were coming in after Paul, after he left, and trying to convert these people, these newly converted Christians, into a strange form of Judaism that combined Christianity and you know Jewish rules. It's kind of a strange message, right? The free gift of salvation with the burden of the law. And that's what they were doing. And you know, lest we think that we're above that. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that we have a tendency to kind of fall into a works-based relationship with the Lord, how it's based on our performance. Uh, we can, you know, fall into that trap. We have a natural tendency to do that. And that's why Paul tells us over and over again um, that it's not about works. It's all about grace. And he tells us so many times because repetition makes it a different tendency, right? This repetition, it becomes more natural, that reaction towards grace. And this is a real trap for me personally. Uh, I grew up playing sports and all kinds of sports. And so uh, my self-worth, my self-image in a large part was based on how I was performing, whether that was in school or whether that was in sports, how I was performing kind of, you know, dictated how I felt about myself. And then when I graduated, I got into a sales career. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, I do have a full-time job Monday through Friday. I, uh, I work for Channel 9. And so now I find myself in another role that has goals and has metrics based and it's all in performance. And so my value to my employer uh, is all about what I produce. And so again, that's something that you know I fall into. They don't keep me around just because I'm a nice guy. <laughs> Uh, so having spent my entire life in these performance-based roles, uh, I can find myself under the cloud of legalism. And how I feel about my relationship with the Lord, uh, in a large part, is based on, you know, how I'm living. You know, if I've messed up, if I've kicked the dog, or if I've, you know, lost it with my kids or something like that, then I may not feel like my relationship is doing very well. But Paul keeps telling us it's not about rules, it's about relationship. Works don't lead to salvation. It's his, it's his kindness 
that leads us to repentance. And his kindness leads us to a true repentance, not one that's just concerned with outward conduct, but one that is more concerned with our inside, our relationship with the Lord. And so last week, Paul gave us three marks of a true believer. Uh, they are worship in the spirit, and then we glory in Jesus Christ, and then we put no confidence in the flesh that we talked about last week, that when we worship in the spirit, we live lives as worship unto the Lord. And what we meant by that is that we don't elevate anything or glorify anything above our relationship with the Lord. And then we boast in the Lord. Over and over he tells us we need to boast in the Lord. Uh, there's nothing inside of us that's worth boasting about. And so we told to boast in the Lord. Paul says that in me dwells no good thing, right? And if no good, no, no good thing dwelt in Paul, then I got news for you doesn't dwell in us either. And that's what he said. Um, because there's no good thing, we put no confidence in the flesh. Nothing that we can do is going to be good enough. In Isaiah 64, he tells us that all of our acts of righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord. And when he talked to Samuel, the prophet Samuel, and he told him to go to the house of Jesse and to anoint the next king of Israel, he went there to the house of Jesse. He saw his oldest, his firstborn, and he thought, this has got to be the guy. I mean, he's tall, he's dark, he's handsome. And the Lord said, no, I have rejected him. Um, because you're looking at the outside appearance, but I'm looking at the heart. I'm looking at who he is on the inside, and David's my guy. Uh, Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for the people of his day that were living outwardly religious lives, but were sinful on the inside, and that was the Pharisees. And he called them whitewashed tombs. Uh, he, he compared them to a cup, a cup that had been washed on the outside, but inside was full of, like, yesterday's chili. <laughs> Pretty disgusting. And that's what Jesus called them. The people who thought they could get ahead simply by keeping the rules. Uh, most of you are probably familiar with the term devil's advocate, right? Devil's advocate. I, it's used all the time in our culture. I had no idea where it came from, so I decided to look it up. It's pretty interesting. Uh, it was actually an official position within the Catholic Church, and what that person would do is they were a canon lawyer, and what they would do is when somebody was up for sainthood or canonization, they would argue against their sainthood. So what they would do is try to find character flaws or anything in their life that would you know, disqualify them from becoming a saint, and so that was their job. And what Paul is getting ready to do here is be a devil's advocate. He is going to take the opposite side of this issue, what he doesn't agree with, to make a point. And that's what we do sometimes. We take the opposite side of something for the sake of debate or to try to make a point. And that's exactly what he's getting ready to do here. He just finished telling us that there is no confidence in the flesh. And then he pauses. He says, well, wait, just for sake of argument, but let's just say I do have confidence in the flesh. Let me tell you what that's about. And so let's read our text for today. We are in Philippians 3. We're going to do verses 4 through 11 today. We're taking on a huge chunk. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of the Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul here is saying, I will put my resume up against these dogs any day. Against anybody, but especially against these guys. He's about to lay out for us the most impressive resume that anybody could ever give. I mean, if he was going in for a religious job interview, you wouldn't look at anybody else. He would be the guy. And it's such a jarring transformation that we have to ask ourselves, how did this guy who was persecuting the church go all the way to walking away from a life where he had devoted himself to the law and following Jesus? And of course, we know that that was his encounter with Jesus Christ. But I read this week a few um, alternative explanations for Paul talking to Jesus on the road to Damascus. I thought it was interesting. Um, one of the guys said that he had suffered a sunstroke, a heat stroke. Like he was on the way to Damascus and he had overexerted himself and it was hot and he had a sunstroke and he really didn't talk to Jesus. Just ridiculous. And then another one said that he was, you know, he had a mood disorder. And that placed him on the psychotic spectrum. And so he really was really out of his mind. He didn't really talk to Jesus. But the third one, the last one that I read, really takes the cake. And it was, this was by a neurologist who wrote this, actually published it in a medical journal. I have no idea why he was talking about this in a medical journal. But he said, Paul actually had an epileptic seizure. Like, that's what happened to him. And he really didn't talk to Jesus. Um, that accounts for this experience that he had. Um, which is which is crazy. Now, he may have been a neurologist, but he clearly had never had a seizure before, or he would have known better. Um, I was actually, some, you know, I was actually diagnosed with epilepsy when I was a freshman in college. I was 19 years old, and I woke up one, one morning with a raging headache, and I wasn't hungover. And I stumbled into the bathroom, and I was looking in the mirror, and I had a huge knot on my head. And I'm staring in the mirror, and I'm like, what in the world? And my, my, my roommate came in, who was my cousin at the time. Well, he still is my cousin, but he was my roommate. <laughs> I still blame him. And he comes in and he's like, dude, you had a seizure last night. And I was like, no, I didn't. He's like, yeah, look at your head. You gotta see, our, our beds were bolted to the wall because <laughs> college students are stupid. Sorry. And, and so they were bolted to the wall and I hit my head and, and it was weird. But I can tell you with certainty that you don't remember anything when you have a seizure. Actually, I almost saw Jesus on my last one. It's been a long time since I had one, but I was actually driving when I had my last one and I wrecked my car and that was bad. But um, yeah, I had one a long time, but I almost did see Jesus. But that's not what happened to Paul when he did a 180 and he left his whole life that was devoted to the law and started following Jesus. So he's going to give us seven different bullet points on his resume and then he tells us what it's worth on the divine spreadsheet. The first bullet point he uses is uh, rituals. This is the first bullet point on his resume, rituals. Listen to where he starts. He starts with circumcision, right? What are these guys into, these legalists? They're into circumcision. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Like, I'm an eighth dayer. Now, in the law, God told Abraham in Genesis 17 that he who is eight days old among you must be circumcised or be cut off from the people. And the number eight is significant in the Bible. It represents new beginnings. And so when you were circumcised on the eighth day, you entered a new identity 
as a Jewish male because you were now under the covenant that God had brought down. And the surgery of circumcision, they wore as a real badge of righteousness. Um, and Paul places that in the loss column. He's like, that's actually loss, me being circumcised. I don't care. The second bullet point on Paul's resume is race. He says that he is of the people of Israel. Now, Paul wasn't a convert to Judaism. Obviously, he was born a Jew, and he was very proud of that fact. In Romans 9, he talks about the importance of the Jewish people and what they were entrusted with. Speaking of his brothers, he said, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And Paul's starting off very basic. He's starting off with rituals. He's starting off with race. But these two things people tend to lean on when it comes to Christianity and salvation. If you would ask some people, say, are you a Christian? Some people might say, well, I'm American. I mean, <laughs> that's about as close as you can get, right? And, I mean, I go to church a couple times a year, Christmas and Easter. That counts. And I have a Bible somewhere in my house. I mean, that's got to count, right? I mean, I'm a Christian. And rituals and your racial heritage won't save you. That doesn't get you into heaven, not because you live in America, not because you go to church a couple times a year, not even if your parents are missionaries. <laughs> your relatives aren't going to get you to heaven. It's got to be a personal connection. Paul told us in the last chapter, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It has to be a one-on-one. -on -one. Paul says, I am a true Jew, and I place that in the lost column too. So the third bullet point is rank. Uh, first three bullet points on his resume, he had nothing to do with, right? Paul, that he was born a Jew, he was circumcised, all of that, the rituals, he had nothing to do with that. This third one, rank, as well. So he says, rituals, check. Ranks, check. Rank, double check. Not only was he a Jew, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I've never given this any thought, but this, the study on it was really cool this week. Um, the tribe of Benjamin was significant for a couple different reasons. They were actually one of the most prominent of the 12 tribes. Benjamin was the youngest son of Jacob, of his favorite wife, Rebecca. He had, she had Joseph, and she had Benjamin, right? That was his favorite wife, and he was the youngest son. Now, Benjamin means son of my right hand. And Rebecca, as she was dying, as she was giving birth, she was passing away as she was giving birth. And she said, I want to name him Benoni, which meant son of my sorrow. And Jacob said, no. I'm naming him son of my right hand, Benjamin, because he's going to be somebody significant. Um, he was also the only one to be born in the promised land, the only one of his sons. And they were also one of only two, drop, two tribes that remained loyal to King David during uh, the rebellion. To ten northern tribes all went with a guy named Jeroboam, and only Benjamin and Judah remained loyal to David. And Jerusalem, the holy city, is actually in Benjamin territory. So when he's saying, I am of the tribe of Benjamin, this is a pretty big deal. They also boasted two significant figures. The very first king of Israel, King Saul, he was a Benjaminite. And then also another guy named Mordecai. And we read about Mordecai in the book of Esther. It was Esther's uncle that raised him. And actually, when they were in exile, he helped save the king. And then he actually ended up helping save the Jewish people from you know, Haman, one of the guys that wanted to kill him. And so, again, you can kind of catch on why he's so proud of being in the tribe of Benjamin. And in that day, not a lot of people could say with any certainty where they descended from. Because when they were in exile in Babylon, a lot of them had intermarried, which they were supposed to do, but they did. And so, the you know, they really blurred the lines on where their heritage was. But Paul, adding to his resume, I am a pure-blooded Jew. 
not a mud blood. <laughs> For you Harry Potter fans. Okay. Anybody ever done one of those genealogy things? Anybody into, into genealogies? Uh, one of those tests, you know, where you swab your mouth and you send in a hair or something and then they tell you, like, where you're from? Uh, those are really popular right now. And I get it. I mean, people want to know if there's somebody significant in their background. Like, do I descend from the Duke of Wellington or something like that? People want to know if there's somebody significant. They want to be a part of something bigger. And Paul tells us over and over again. He's like, look, you are part of a heavenly kingdom. Like, you guys are sons and daughters of the king. That's where your identity lies, not in your earthly heritage. So all that rank stuff is actually rank. <laughs> he said, it stinks, it's garbage. I'm putting it in the last column. Now, this, the next four Paul chose, the first three had nothing to do with the next Paul before he can claim that he did on his own, and that is traditions. The next one is traditions. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was actually born, if you remember, Saul of Tarsus, and when God changed his name to Paul, he was born in what is modern-day Turkey. So he's born outside of the physical you know, boundaries of Israel, but he and his family kept their traditions. They kept their Orthodox faith and their language, uh, their customs. And it's interesting because the Jewish people are the only culture on earth that maintained their national identity without a homeland. Every other culture in history, once they had been taken out of their homeland, had lost their national identity within a couple generations. They had assimilated into that culture, but not the Jewish people because they have a God-given identity and he had given them traditions that had outlasted their dispersion. So there were other Jews that had, you know, assimilated into Greek culture. They had taken on Greek dress and all that kind of stuff, but not Paul. He said, listen, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. We maintained that. And when he was old enough, he was actually sent to Jerusalem and he studied under one of their most, you know, most famous teachers, a guy named Gamaliel. But he is talking about his education. He's talking about his traditions. And he had the best education, too. He was, you know, it's basically like telling people you went to Harvard or Yale or William Joe College. <laughs> Devin, we talked about this last night, he's the fourth generation to have attended William Jewell, which is pretty cool. They don't care about <laughs> I thought we'd get a brick or something, but they, they didn't give us one. Uh, so he's saying, listen, genetically, mentally, physically, I am superior to most of the people that I know. And this can lead to a lot of pride. Uh, education, there was a quote by a guy named Malcolm Mudridge, Speaking of Harry Potter, sounds like a very Harry Potter name, Malcolm Ludridge. He says this, education, the great mumbo-jumbo, the fraud of the ages, purports to equip us to live, is prescribed as a universal remedy for everything from juvenile delinquency to becoming prematurely senile. For the most part, it serves to enlarge stupidity, inflate conceit, and enhance crudility, and put those subjected to it at the mercy of brainwashers with printing presses, radio, and television at their disposal. That's pretty harsh criticism for education. But what he's saying is the same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Amen. He knew what he was talking about. The next one on Paul's resume is religion. He said, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. So he was true to the traditions. He also chose his religion in that he was a Pharisee. There were two ruling parties that day, uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees kept a really literal interpretation of the law. Um, and the Pharisees made up a bunch of stuff that added to the law and then elevated that to the same level of the scriptures. Um, the Sadducees were um, really, their influence surrounded by the temple and the Pharisees more around the actual synagogues. But 
This is what drew so much condemnation from Jesus to the Pharisees. They had let their zeal for the law overpower their love for people. And in Mark 7, Jesus um, has this exchange with them, and he says this. He said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines, the, co the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. You and I have to be very careful with the rules that we follow um, and not placing them on others. Uh, there may be some conviction that God has given you, something that he wants you to do or something that he doesn't want you to do. And that's great. That's fine. But don't try to place those burdens on other people. Like God may have told you that he doesn't, you know, you shouldn't eat red meat. But I don't have that conviction. <laughs> I like barbecue. <laughs> God invented barbecue. <laughs> Burnt offerings, guys. Come on. He invented it. <laughs> I went to the American Royal. Uh, was that last weekend? That was last weekend. And they roasted a whole pig, and it was awesome. <laughs> I don't have that conviction. Um, but we need to be careful that we don't lay those things on other people. And that's what the Pharisees were doing, and that's what Jesus was talking to them about. Um, and that was the trap that they fell into. One of the things that we can fall into, they were making judgments on people based on how well they kept these rules that they had made up. Um, one thing I found really interesting is that, um, as I just mentioned, the Sadducees, their influence was around their responsibilities um, around the temple, and the Pharisees controlled the people by being active in the synagogues. Uh, the Sadducees, their sect actually kind of, you know, disappeared when the temple was um, destroyed in 70 AD, but the Pharisees, because they were with the synagogues, they lived on which I think is interesting. The law lives on. And the law will continue to live on and rule over us until we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and accept His grace. Both groups rejected the Messiah, one devoted to a literal interpretation, one making up a bunch more rules to follow, but both missed the mark because it didn't center on Jesus. No amount of devotion to religious rules is going to save us. If that was the case, then the Pharisees and Jesus would have been best buds. But they weren't. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Religion placed that in the last column as well. Paul tells the Philippians, I was the most religious guy that I knew. I outdid everyone in my devotion to the law. And that brings us to our next point, sincerity, or what he calls zeal. As zeal, a persecutor of the church. In Acts 22, Paul is giving a defense to the Jewish leaders at the time who had captured. They were actually beating him up. They would have killed him at the temple if the Roman guards hadn't come in and rescued him. And they pull him out and listen to what he said to the leaders. He said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And in 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says that he is the least of the apostles because he did this. Because he persecuted the church, he calls himself the least of the apostles. And then later on, because this shame never left him throughout his whole life, uh, he calls himself the least of the saints. It's like, actually, I'm not just the least of the apostles, I'm the least of the saints. And then later on in his life, the longer he walked with the Lord, as a lot of us have found out, the longer we're Christians, uh, we realize, he says, well, I'm actually the cheapest of sinners. I'm the worst, because I persecuted God's church. 
Um, the Jews view, viewed zeal as a supremely religious virtue. And the Pharisee religion was actually a two-sided coin um, of, of love and hate. They loved the law, but they hated anybody or anything that disagreed with them. Um, and if you've been on social media at all, right, <laughs> we fall into the same temptation. You see this. People are zealous for their Christianity or their religion, but they can be very hateful towards other people who disagree with them. And we're told as Jesus followers to love those, right? Love everybody. Um, we are commanded to love God, love people, and hate the things that offend God. And sin offends God. Right? We're to hate sin. Love the sinner and hate the sin. We hear this phrase thrown around a lot in Christian circles, uh, and that's true. But sometimes the tendency is to, in loving people, is to overlook right, or ignore the sin in their lives without talking to them and speaking the truth to them in love, even if they don't want to hear it. Um, and the problem is, is that people define sin differently. They try to redefine it or they try to justify it uh, to fit in the lifestyle that they're living. But sin isn't open to interpretation. Right? It is what the Bible says it is. When Jesus would talk to sinners, he was calling them up. He wasn't calling them out. He was calling them up, up and out of the lifestyle that they were living in. He said, go and sin no more. That's what Jesus would tell these people. And basically, he didn't mean we're all sinners. right? We're all sinful. We're all going to sin. But he was saying, leave that lifestyle that is destroying you. It is so destructive. You need to come out of that. And so Paul says, just like the Pharisees, they were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. And he says, zeal, I'm going to place that over here in the lost column too. And then lastly is legalistic righteousness. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. And that's quite the claim to say that I was blameless under the law. Now, he's not saying he was sinful because we read in Romans, he says, I, was, um, I coveted. And so he knows he's sinful. But he was saying, in the outward observances of the law, outwardly speaking, the way everybody viewed me, I was blameless. Nobody could accuse me of breaking those laws. He was outwardly flawless, but spiritually, he was still lost. False religion. This is the danger with false religion in the world today. And what the devil tries to you know, spread is that it deceives our mind. False religion, religion deceives our mind. But it consequently dooms somebody to hell because they think that they're going to heaven because of the rules or the rituals or the people that they know or where they live. A teacher was having a conversation with a student who was not doing his homework. He was not getting the work done. And the teacher was telling him, look, you need to be doing your homework. You need to be doing more. You are an underachiever. And the little boy said, I'm not an underachiever. You're an overexpector." <laughs> an overexpector. We can't keep the law's demands. Um, we're not underachievers. We're just sinners, right? In need of grace. That's what we need. And Paul lists out his resume for the sake of argument, and he goes on to tell us how it tallies up on the spreadsheet. He counts it all as a liability, a loss, when it comes to righteousness and salvation. And then he tells us what we gain when we count all that stuff as loss. Verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Notice that he says, I counted and then I count. So everything in the past that I attained, everything that I'm attaining now, everything in the future, whatever I do, doesn't matter how many churches I plant, doesn't matter how many sufferings I go through, everything in the past, everything in the future is worthless compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And that phrase, surpassing worth, it, it talks about something that 
you can't put a value on. It has incalculable worth. When we get to heaven, we will spend eternity exploring the benefits and the knowledge of God and what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And that means that it requires a personal involvement. In John 10, uh, Jesus talks about, he says, I am the good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And it, this is so cool, guys. I, I'm, one of these days, I'm going to preach on Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm, and it's going to blow your mind. It's going to be fantastic. But one of the things I was reading about is that shepherds in that day, they would all be out with their flocks in the fields. And at night, they would all come together, right? There's safety in numbers. And it was also more eyeballs to look out for the enemy, um, wolves and predators, all that kind of stuff. And so they would all come together. And then in the morning, they would head out again. But all the sheep had gotten mixed together in the night. So they would head out and get this. Every shepherd had a unique song that they would sing. And when the sheep would hear the shepherd's song, they would follow him. Isn't that amazing? That's so cool. Um, one of the, the verses that is Alicia and I's favorite is Zephaniah 3.17. And it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will exult over you with loud singing. And we follow him. Paul uses a term here. Uh, he uses a term called rubbish. And it's translated rubbish. Um, in the kindest sense of the word, it means dung, or literally excrement, is what he is calling it. That's what he equates his religious resume to compared to knowing Jesus. He said, listen, if I have to throw all this stuff in the toilet to gain Christ, so be it. That's all I care about is being found in him. Why does Paul want to be found in Jesus? Because if we stand before God, if we stand before our maker, apart from Jesus, we will be judged eternally. But if he looks at us and he sees Jesus, if we're in him, like the brats that I ate last night are in me, they are now part of me, you cannot see them. He's going to see Jesus and you are going to be forgiven because you have a righteousness that comes from him. Okay, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Next benefit is righteousness. Paul spent his entire life devoted to living out every aspect of the law. And the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had made the law an end to itself. They basically worshipped the law. They weren't worshipping God as much as they were worshipping the law. But the law was given to point us towards our need for a savior. God said, here's 10 of them. Here's 10 rules. Try to keep them. They couldn't, even, they couldn't even keep 10, right? And neither can we. And it's supposed to point us to our need for a Savior. And we realize we can't attain righteousness by our own merit. This is what Paul said uh, in Romans 7, 9 through 13. He says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death in me. For since seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Once Paul realized that the law was actually producing death in him, he could let it go. He could let it go and accept the grace that Jesus was offering. And if you are a rule follower, some of you are rule followers, or if you know somebody who is a rule follower, 
and you try to bring that into your Christianity, you are not going to be joyful. You're actually going to be quite miserable because you're going to live with a lot of anxiety and worry and insecurity on how your relationship with God is doing based on how you're living. And when we make that mistake, we're going to come up short when we wrestle with those issues. And Paul let it all go. And it would be like if you came into church today, on your way in, you tripped and you fell in the mud. And you walk inside, you're covered in mud, you're going to go clean yourself up. And somebody just happens to have a change of clothes that fits you perfectly, and they offer them to you. And you say, no thanks, I'm, I'm just going to go in the bathroom and try to clean myself up as much as I can. And then you sit in the row, filthy. That's what it's like. Somebody is offering you for free the gift of salvation, and we try to do it on our own. We've probably talked about this pretty much every week in Galatians. I felt like I was giving the same sermon every week in Galatians. It's not about the law, it's about grace. But that is true. Abraham came before the law and says that he believed in God. He believed what he said and it was counted to him as righteousness just because he had faith. Okay, next benefit is power. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We're almost there. The father, when he raised Jesus back to life, says that he holds the keys of death and the grave. Jesus tells us this when he was talking to John in Revelations 1. He says, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And because he has resurrected life, you can have resurrected life, not just when you die, but here and now, because he can bring your spirit man back to life. And it's quoted here, when we baptize people, we say, this comes out of Romans 6, we say, buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. We identify with him in baptism and then raised to walk in newness of life. This is the great exchange. We get to exchange death for life. Our attempts at the law for righteousness by faith. The next benefit is fellowship. It says that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Some translate this as the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, we, we all crave fellowship. We're made for fellowship. But nobody wants to suffer. <laughs> we want fellowship, but we don't want to suffer. That's part of the reason why uh, we name this church Fellowship, Bethany Fellowship. It's not just because it sounds churchy. But we want fellowship. And one of the things that we are going to do, this is going to be happening soon, is we are going to start working more on our fellowship. And we're going to start having meals together after church. And we're going to start serving together. We're going to have some community projects that we're going to be doing together. And I'm going to talk to the people here and see if there's things we can do for some of the residents. And then also out in the community. And we're just going to work on community and fellowship and just getting closer as a body. And I'm really excited about that. We all want fellowship, but not necessarily the suffering. But suffering is an inevitable part of following Jesus. Um, it's identification with him in baptism, but also practically because Jesus told us, he said, if you will come after me, you have to pick up your cross and you have to follow me. Like your flesh, those things, those desires that are against me, you need to lay those down. You need to crucify them and get rid of them. If we want to save our life, we have to lose it. We have to look different than the world. Everybody in the world wants to save their life. They want to do what makes them feel good. And Jesus says, look, you guys need to look different. You need to pick up your cross and follow me. But the cool thing is, is he has fellowship with us in our sufferings. He is near to us. The deepest moments you will ever have spiritually come in times of intense suffering. And he is with us during those. Our suffering drives us to the Lord. We have a merciful high priest that feels the same things that you feel. He's hurt the same way that you hurt. That's why he had to come here as a man, 
That way he could be the perfect mediator between us, sinful humanity, and a holy, righteous God. That's why he came here, to do that, so that he could feel everything. And I could talk about Daniel and, you know, the lion's den and the fire and the furnace, but I don't have time. So we're going to go to the last one. Make that your homework for this week. Go read Daniel chapter 3. Okay, final benefit is glory, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, when he says by any means possible, he doesn't have doubts on whether or not he's going to end up in heaven. Some translations render it in order that. And because he says that, what he means is he may attain the resurrection now because he may die. I mean, he's writing this from prison. So he's like, I may die. I may experience my resurrected body here pretty soon if I die. Or Jesus may come back soon. Like, if Jesus comes back, then I'm going to receive my resurrected body because it's going to take us out of this world. It's going to rapture us. And I can tell you, every single day, it seems like that's more imminent. The more things happen, the more things go sideways, the crazier it gets. Um, I think we all kind of long for that day. Um, he longed to be free of his wretchedness. I mean, he said this in Romans 7. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I think a lot of us feel that way. Um, this dead body, this wretchedness, this sinfulness that we feel, our bodies breaking down, we'd like to get rid of that. And the answer to that, who will free us from this body of death, is Jesus. So you can bring the kids in, Randy. You guys can come back up. But making it count is what I named this. Making it count. What do we gain in the great exchange when we exchange our merits and righteousness for his grace? Well, we gain the knowledge of Christ. The righteousness of Christ, the power of Christ, the fellowship of his sufferings, and the sharing of glory in his resurrection. That's what we get when we trade in all of our filthy rags for the surpassing benefits of knowing him. In his follow-up book, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. If you guys haven't read The Screwtape Letters, fantastic book, you should read it. There was a follow-up book to that in Screwtape Writes Again, and it's about a demon writing to a more inexperienced demon, and he's assigned to a human, he doesn't really know what he's doing, and so Screwtape is writing to Wormwood and kind of giving him advice on how to trip up this human that he's assigned to. And he says this in one of his letters. He said, help him to become more religious, but for health's sake, not more Christian. Get him to accept that church is a social club and a substitute. Churchianity for Christianity rules instead of relationship with the, with the enemy, which is our Savior. He calls him the enemy. Everything's backwards. And so get him to accept that his rituals and his rules and all the things that he's doing are going to save him, but not a relationship with Jesus and not a relationship with each other, which is what we're called to. So making it count. That's the message for today. This week. Look at the things that you do, the rules that we try to keep, our relationship with God, what's based on, not based on how, how you know, many times we've read our devotions that week. God still loves you, whether you've read it 10 days in a row or if you've missed it for 10 months in a row. He just wants to talk to you. Yeah. Pray to Him, worship Him, just have fellowship. We have communion back there if we were able to do it first and we're going to sing one more song and then we're going to be dismissed and go back into the mission. With joy.